going to speak about Tantra. And uh, I know you all diligently read that chapter, so I wanted to... <laughs> Hedge or tail, that sounds, sounds like Tantra. Anyway, <laughs> I wanted to uh, slightly modify the definition of Tantra. The, the definition that was given in the book was a loom in which you weave all kinds of meanings and activities and so on and so forth. And that's actually a secondary meaning of the word. It's a long walk for it, you know, I catch my breath. So anyway, Aww. I'm okay. So anyway, uh, let's go to the literal meaning of Tantra because today's class is about Tantra. So Sanskrit root, that's a, that's a root sign. Very elegant little root sign there, which is used in grammar. So the root, the root for this word is tan, which means to expand or to stretch and so on. And tra, T-R-A, is a suffix which means sort of instrumentality. Uh, and so therefore, tanta literally means the means or the instrument to expand. And there are various uh, tr important traditions within Hinduism which go under this name of Tantra. Unfortunately, the chapter, which you all just uh, studied diligently, really only um, gives one side of it, or one part of it. There's some very important aspects of Tantra which were not given in that chapter for some mysterious reason, which perhaps will never be deciphered. Anyway, so Tantra as the means to expand. This is the root meaning of the word. And then a loom, obviously, is something which you stretch out the threads and everything. And the idea of a loom is a secondary meaning. This is the primary meaning. Now, the, there, there are essentially two kinds of tantra. It's kind of like the dark side of the force and the, uh, I guess, the light side of the force. In the sense that there is one part of tantra which was, uh, as, it, as stated in the book correctly, antinomian. Uh, Oh, how many of you picked up on this word? Oh my God. <laughs> B season. Let's see. Anti. Nomia. There's a Greek word, nomos, which doesn't mean name. Nomos actually means law. And so antinomian means sort of like the, the tendency to go against the rules, the tendency to break the law, the tendency to define freedom as going against the nomos, whatever is the rule of the law, like if you, you know, that sort of, some people get a sense of freedom by breaking laws, breaking rules, I don't have to do what everybody else does, and so on. And so, there is uh, one tantra school which sort of opposed the Vedas, opposed the Vedas, and, and opposed the strictness, the rules, the moral rules, the ritual rules, the social order, and so on, opposed all of that, and, um, it's like you can only be scandalous for so long. It's either you win the glorious cultural revolution or you kind of moderate or you get persecuted and in various ways. That's kind of what happens throughout human history in all civilizations. And so we'll see that this sort of uh, this antinomian, this break the rules tantra, which we'll talk about more in, in well, not completely detail, but bless you, but to some extent. So this antinomian tantra... Uh, part of it got assimilated into more mainstream Hinduism. Part of it uh, went extinct. And uh, that's what happened to it. So, but there's a whole other Tantra, which for some reason the chapter didn't talk about, which is actually the original Tantra, and which actually is the most important part of Tantra. And that is a Tantra which defines itself not as opposing the Vedas, 
not antinomian, but it's actually complementing and completing the Vedic revela uh, revelation. And so I'll talk a little bit, a little bit about that tantra. Uh, for example, in the Bhagavad Purana, which we talked about, the most important Purana, by far the most important Purana, and one of the most important of all sacred texts in India, you find a statement that uh, one practices bhakti, that one pursues the spiritual path by methods which are vaidika, which means Vedic, and it's interesting that, um, oh, your brother, welcome, and your brother's friend. How do you do? Come on, is there any seats there? So uh, you didn't miss anything exciting yet. We still haven't done the car chase scene. So anyway, it's interesting uh, that uh, English is an Indo-European language, and so... Uh, Vaidika in Sanskrit, you can take a noun like Veda and make an adjective by adding a K sound. Same thing we do in English. Uh, make the same K sounds. You take the word Veda and we make Veda um, make Vedic. That's a K sound phonetically. It's the same sound. It's just a little linguistic detail. So anyway, Vaidika means Vedic. And Tantrika means Tantric. So in the Bhagavad Purana, and in other literatures, these two, these two paths are seen as complementary. So what is the, let's say, the complementary tantra, the tantra which defined itself as actually helping people to complete their enlightenment and complete their spiritual purification by offering information which was not contained in the oldest Vedic literature? Well, as we discussed last time, uh, when you go from the earlier historical period Vedic period where people performed fire sacrifices. And by the way, fire sacrifices was all the rage all around the world. If you study ancient Greece in Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, that's what everybody does. Everybody does fire sacrifices. And uh, certainly the ancient Persian culture, which is a type of cultural uh, dialect of Vedic. I mean, ancient Persian is actually a dialect of ancient Vedic Sanskrit. And so all around the world, in, in Europe and so on, you can see these fire sacrifices. And then, as, it, as I discussed also last lecture, uh, according to ancient literature, ancient Greek literature, ancient uh, Sanskrit, Indian literature, and the literature of other ancient civilizations, people used to actually be more civilized and more spiritually advanced. So the world kind of devolved. We tend to think that whatever we are doing now is the greatest thing that's ever happened, and people that lived in the past are sort of less fortunate than we are because they weren't like us. But actually, there's another way to look at it, that people in the... <laughs> got a seat there? That people in the past were actually in some ways more advanced, and so in the past, people could just do fire sacrifices, invoke the presence of gods and goddesses, and actually see them through the process of fire sacrifice. But as time went on and human culture degraded, People needed more visible, more obvious means of contacting divine power. And so therefore you have the process of puja, worshipping deities in temples and so on and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> so in that regard, the process of actually uh, carving or somehow constructing a physical image, something you can actually see, a, a figurine you could say, as a representation of a god or goddess, uh, that is described in great detail in the Tantra literature. For example, there, there's a literature mentioned in our book called the Narada Pancharatra, 
which is extremely important in the Vaishnav culture, which describes in elaborate detail deity worship. Also, uh, something we discussed earlier, the Chatur Vyuha conception, the idea that uh, God, that there's one supreme God, or goddess in some cases, that expands himself or herself so that you can have many other forms. For example, an original form of Vishnu or Krishna, and then the expansion into Balaram or Vasudeva, Sankarsana, Pradyumna, Aniruddha, and so on. Different forms. The idea being that this does not compromise monotheism. There's just one God, but that one God can expand into many different forms. That's also something which is elaborately explained in Tantra literature, as opposed to the four Vedas, or the Brahmanas, or Upanishads, or Aranyakas, or any of those literatures, and the idea of the spiritual world. Elaborate descriptions of a perfect, eternal spiritual world, and a world where individual souls have eternal uh, spiritual bodies, and have intimate, loving relationships with the personal God. Those themes also are things which are described more in the Tantra literature. And so this Tantra literature understands itself as giving further revelation, tantra, expanding. This is the means to expand our understanding. So when the Upanishads speak, as they often do, of a personal God, of an absolute truth, uh, here are the details about that personal God and about the spiritual world in which God lives. Or, for example, in Bhagavad Gita, which was accepted as part of Vedanta apparatus, the three great texts of, of Vedanta, the Upanishads, from the sutras and Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says that uh, that those who go there never come back, those who go to my supreme abode, Paramang Dhamma. So Krishna talks a few times in the Gita about a supreme abode from which people never come back. And then again, the Tantra literature elaborates upon it. And in the Bhagavad Purana, you have similar information. So, so you, that's a different conception of, of Tantra, in fact, the Bhagavad Purana, again, this most important Purana, talks about, specifically mentions Tantra, the case of the Narada Tantra, the Narada Pancharatra, as, first of all, mentions Narada as an incarnation of God. Narada is mentioned in the uh, first canto, third chapter, as an incarnation of Krishna. And the book he presented, the text he presented, the Narada Pancharatra, this Tantra literature, is accepted as divine revelation in this most important Purana. So this is the type of tantra which, in a sense, has had the most powerful influence on Hinduism and is not really mentioned in the chapter on tantra. So be it. Anyway, getting to the other tantra. Equal time, level playing field. So, now we'll talk more about the exciting antinomian sort of medieval hippie type of tantra. Free love and so on. So, uh, so I, I want to mention a few points about this antinomian tantra, the tantra which, again, the Greek word nomos means law, that, that tantra which sort of defines liberation as freeing yourself from all worldly rules, laws, break all the rules, and, and that's the way to be free, basically. So, um, here are a few quotes from our book, page 260. Tantra homologizes the human body of the cosmos, a homology. Uh, I know you all like homologies. Uh, homo is actually Sanskrit sama, or samo. Yeah, Sanskrit S tends to become European H, and you see the same thing where the word Sindhu uh, becomes Hindu, actually. 
So a Sanskrit S tends to become a European H, so from Sumo, in Sanskrit, Sumo, same or equal, homo, you know, homologizing, which means reasoning your way to an equality between two things, a homology, sort of a logical explanation that two things are actually equal. So what's homologized, according to our textbook, is the human body to the cosmos. The human body is homologized to the cosmos. So that by, so to speak, working on your body, by working on your body, either through like, well, there, was a, there was a section on kundalini yoga, and so on, by sort of mystic body work, so to speak, you can actually connect to certain cosmic powers and raise your consciousness in certain ways. That's the basic idea. Now, if we look at our body, uh, one of the most uh, distinctive and dramatic and influential aspects of our bodies is that our bodies are gendered. And the boy-girl thing is uh, extremely important in human culture. I mean, it's, it's like, it's one of the central things that goes on. It makes the world go around. Uh, this idea that there are actually two genders and uh, they tend to attract each other. And we tell each other also. But anyway... <laughs> So, therefore, in this general analogy or homology between the body and the cosmos, gender takes a central role. So here's another quote. Uh, the absolute in Tantra is generally regarded as expressing itself through male and female principles, which are intrinsically present at various grades of manifestation in all things. So if you look at the universe, look at all things, your own body, your own mind, there's always this male-female dynamic going on which represents higher cosmic powers and realities. And so by connecting to your own gender forces or whatever, your own feelings and attractions and identity, sexual identity even, or gender identity, somehow you're connecting to uh, the cosmic version of this and your own little micro version of it is just that. It's just a representation of a higher cosmic reality, which is also gendered. So that's the idea. So, keep going here. Thus, sexual representations invoking the imagery, sexual represent, representations invoking the imagery of uniting male and female principles, I'm sorry, male and female polarities, are endemic, endemic in tantric literature, ritual and symbolic art. It's everywhere. It's throughout. So the whole tantric culture, again, this is the, uh, technically what, what this tantra is often called is the, uh, well, there's, there's an expression, vama. Vama means left. And uh, it's sort of a pejorative, I guess, because it's the uh, oppression of right-handed people. Anyway, the Sanskrit word vama means left, and so it's called like the vama mark, the left path, or the left meaning the path that's out of control. And so, uh, now, one thing I want to bring into this discussion right away, and then, then we'll continue, and that is, this, uh, well, actually, let me, let me mention something else first, try to make this as, as coherent as possible. There is something called the pancha makara. Uh, the pancha makara, pancha means five, like pancha, sense, uh, like English, penta, pentagon, five. And so the five M's, you've heard of the 3M Corporation, well, this is the five M's path. And this is the Bama Marga, this is the left path, the path is antinomian, that wants to break the rules. So they have five M's, 
that you were supposed to practice to show you what we're talking about here in terms of being antinomian. And the first M, or whatever order, is mangsa, which means flesh. You should eat meat. Uh, precisely because you're not supposed to. And, uh, in other words, the moral rule of ahimsa, remember the Buddhist, non-violence, be compassionate to all creatures, uh, you should do the opposite. You should, uh, you should actually eat flesh, you should break that rule, you should disregard that moral principle, uh, because somehow it's liberating. Then, the second M is matsya, which means fish, eat fish. I guess they were just really into piling up lots of letters, you know, like the same. Anyway, so you should eat fish, flesh, like meat, eat fish. Mudra means a sign, it often means a hand gesture, sometimes it means like a sexual partner, but I don't know. Uh, maybe they made obscene gestures like, you know, the old country bird or something. And then... So four, the fourth end is maituna, or sex, and um, actually, actually, at Harvard, I actually took a course just on tantra, uh, from a tantra specialist. I'm not a practitioner, I don't think, but a, but a tantra specialist. And so, uh, in these tantric circles, in, in, in the real nitty-gritty tantric circles, uh, the best possible sex you could perform, I mean, sexually, the wife didn't count, because... That was not antinomian. That was not against the rules. So if you said sex with your wife, it's like, come on, dude. So the best thing was incest. The best thing was incest. You know, your sister, your mother, your daughter, whatever. Uh, so that's what they meant. I mean, this is not mainstream Hinduism. This eventually got wiped out. But anyway, so then Majjana, sex, preferably incest. But some type of scandalous sex. Some type of sex which would offend normal people in your culture. And the fifth thing is madhya, or liquor. In other words, you know, booze it up. So, so all these things, uh, they, obviously you couldn't, you couldn't preach these things, or you couldn't, they all did it clandestinely, but you still, you couldn't really preach this in a very conservative, you know, orthodox Hindu society without getting into some real dust-ups, you know, with other people. And so what happened, basically, is that these tantric people kind of, some of them became sort of reassimilated into Hinduism and began interpreting these things symbolically so that you wouldn't really do these things. It just became a type of symbolism that, and everyone kind of forgot what it originally meant. I mean, think of the old Vedic sacrifices where they killed animals, and then as people begin to turn against this type of sort of Hindu kosher industry, killing animals in large scale... And then they start making, you know, these little cake animals, little like the gingerbread animals, and they... So in the sacrifice, you don't kill a real animal. You just symbolically make a little toy baked animal or something. So in the same way, in the tantric side, some people just, you know, over time just got away from this, and it became symbolic, and then they got reassimilated into Hinduism. Some people continue to do it, and, and when the Muslims invaded India, which we're going to talk about in, in a short time, the Muslim invasion of India, where... Everything kind of gets thrown up in the air. Uh, they they persecuted these practices and these practitioners, and uh, and they basically vanished from India. This went on a lot in Kashmir. But anyway, so so this is the other kind of um, well, this was the antinomian streak. So uh, the Shaiva the Shaiva Siddhanta this this went on a lot in Shaiva groups, people that worship Shiva. 
And another point I wanted to make is if you, a few chapters back, Shiva. Uh, we've talked many times that according to Sankhya, according to the Bhagavad Gita, there are basically three qualities in the world, which are goodness, passion, and ignorance. The highest quality is goodness, virtue, serenity, selflessness, uh, compassion, and so on, wisdom. That's the quality of sattva, goodness. And then there's passion, which is the quality of ambition, greed, pride, uh, becoming very active to achieve something for yourself or your own tribe and so on. And then there's ignorance, which is, can't get out of bed in the morning. You know, ignorance means just ignorance. No concern for wisdom, no real knowledge, uh, lethargic, depressed, uh, procrastinating, can't get anything done. Life is just all a big haze and so on and so forth. Ignorance. So, and, and of course, irrational activity, including irrational violence. In the mode of goodness, the mode of goodness tends to be non-violent. In the mode of passion, there's sort of selective, culturally approved violence, such as, for example, uh, authorized military activity or, 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 or whatever, so there's a, or perhaps certain kinds of violent sports. So, so in the mode of passion, there's a type of culturally authorized violence, and in the mode of ignorance, there's sort of irrational violence, even unethical violence. So, typically among the three, what is sometimes called the three gods of Hinduism, but they're really not, but uh, Vishnu, Vishnu has always been associated with the mode of goodness. Vishnu is called the Sattva Devata, the deity of goodness, and therefore, historically, the Brahmins tended to worship Vishnu. And for that reason also, you find the great epics, such as Mahabharata and Ramayana, ultimately are about Vishnu. Because Vishnu was the god of goodness, and the god of the Brahmins were also supposed to be, supposed to be, in goodness. And then Brahma, the creator, who creates, it has to, you know, that's a very active thing, he's the god of passion, and Shiva is the destroyer, he destroys the universe, when, you know, the time's up, no more time in the cosmic scoreboard clock, that's when Shiva comes in and destroys the universe. And what I want to say is that this, there has been a connection between this type of antinomian or break the rules, tantra, and uh, worshippers of Shiva. There's, and so there's a type of ignorance. There's a, speaking now about just that quality, that guna. There's a type of ignorance which has been associated, sort of a dark quality, the dark side of the force, that is not, I, I'm not attributing it to Shiva, who is actually always respected within Hinduism as a great god, Mahadeva, literally the great god. But among the followers, there was a tendency, not an exclusive tendency, because many great Brahmins worship Shiva, but there was a tendency for people in the, lower, the lowest mode to kind of be attracted to these things. And uh, so I'll give you a few examples of this. Uh, for one thing, Shiva is interpreted by followers of him a sort of a combination of asceticism uh, and eroticism. One of the most famous symbols in India of Shiva is the erect linga, you know, the phallic symbol, and the yoni for the goddess. So this sort of very public, um, explicit use of uh, the male and female reproductive organs is uh, far out. So, so that, that's one aspect. That, that's something which would never really be ever considered 
say within Vaishnav worship, it would be considered to be uh, it would be considered somewhat immodest and uh, inappropriate. But it's accepted on the Shaiva side. Uh, that's the way it's done. And of course, within Hinduism, everyone accepts it. Everyone is used to it. It's not that it's considered a bad thing, but it's just something that you would never find within Vaishnavism. Another example, uh, among one Shaiva group, the Pashupats, is one of the oldest recorded Shaiva groups, uh, you have these, ant- again, antinomian tendencies in their public behavior. This is from our book, by the way. Uh, speaking gibberish. In other words, going out in public and just sort of, wow, you know, speaking nonsense and making a nuisance of yourself. Making lewd gestures to women. I mean, somehow this is, like, religious. Making lewd, L-E-W-D, lewd gestures to women, and then if people scorn your behavior, they suck up your bad karma. (laughs) So, this seems rather bizarre to me, I have to admit. First of all, speaking gibberish and making lewd gestures doesn't seem to me like the most powerful way to pursue self-realization, but but also the idea of tricking people so that you can dump your bad karma on them. I mean, it seems to me a very ignorant thing to do. It seems to me you should go out on the street not to trick people into sucking up all your bad karma so they'll suffer instead of you, but just the opposite reason. It seems to me a religious person should go out on the street to relieve people of their suffering and to try to help them, not to trick them into suffering so I don't have to suffer. So there is something, I have to admit, to my mind, ignorant about this. And of course the Kalamukas, another group from the Pashupatas, smearing ashes on their faces, performing rituals and crematoriums. But, you know, it's kind of like, it's sort of like the Alfred Hitchcock path or something. Um, there's a group called the Kapalikas, where they would use a staff with a skull on top of it. You know, it's like, ooh, it's like real, kind of like this eerie... Uh, spooky stuff. Put a skull on your staff, use a human skull for a begging bowl. Or they can find one. Oh, in India? (laughs) (laughs) India? No problem. (laughs) Yeah, there's stuff like that. Actually, I'll tell you, yeah, you reminded me of something. um, In 1972, I was traveling around America lecturing in universities on these things. On, on, on Hinduism, actually sleeping in a van and just sort of traveling around the country. And um, I remember we stopped, I think it was in uh, it was Champaign-Urbana or Bloomington Normal, one of the two major college towns in Illinois. And uh, I, w- I was sleeping in, in a little yoga center. You know, sometimes we would like really have, that was like really opulent for us. We normally slept in a van, but sometimes we'd sleep in a, the yoga center or something. So we slept in the yoga center. We were there in the afternoon kind of hanging out for a little while, resting between programs. And they did a tantric ritual. These were, you know, American college students. And they, they kind of turned all the lights off and drew these curtains and took out these daggers and started, started doing this wild dancing music. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I didn't know who these people were. And they turned all the lights out and got their daggers out and started wildly running around. And so, <laughs> so that night he went back to our van. <laughs> anyway, so fun and games on the road. But so more so the skulls, begging bowls, like you said, drinking blood. They use ornaments of bone, and uh, and then for them, Shivan bodies. This is from the book, page one ninety three. Shivan bodies a savage beauty in Quranic myths. He seduces the wives of sages, rishis, to punish their husbands for their arrogance. 
She even said to have a disdain for social niceties, preferring the wilderness as his habitat, and even resides at cremation grounds. If you think back from the proto-Shiva, Rudra, from the Rig Veda, who's dangerous. In the Rig Veda, Shiva's uh, Rudra, sort of a marginal figure, and he's dangerous and has to be appeased, and if he's not appeased, he may really do you in. He's easily pleased, but easily displeased, you know, Ashutosh. And so, uh, so Shiva, it's interesting because for the Vaishnavas, to show you the syncretism and inclusivism within, in India, for the Vaishnavas, Shiva is a great figure, and they see him as a pure spiritual figure who is compassionately sort of looking after these sort of somewhat out-of-control people who are attracted to that type of Gothic Hinduism and uh, kind of looks over them and then destroys the universe, but he himself is actually a great spiritual figure. Whereas within certain, and within certain Shaiva communities, he's also seen in that way, as a great sage, not as a wild figure. However, there were certain Shaiva communities that saw sort of a type of wildness and antinomian sense of like, that's really it. That's really what it's all about. That's the highest thing. There's nothing higher than breaking all the rules and hanging out in crematoriums and, you know, begging with a skull or drinking blood and stuff like that and, and smearing ashes from the crematorium on your body and so on. So some people actually thought that this is it. That's, a great, that's the way to go. From the Brahminical point of view, this is an example of Thomasa Dharma or type of religion in ignorance which is not in itself evil, but it's just sort of like the entry level for people whose own nature is sort of an ignorance, that's what attracts them. Well, I have, oh, I'll say it. I think I should I say this. Okay, maybe I will say it. There's, um, there's sort of a famous Hollywood personality. We sort of have mutual friends. Uh, Mel Gibson. And... Uh, Mel Gibson produced an extraordinarily violent version of The Passion of Christ, as you know, recently. And uh, if, if you study, I mean, the standard biographies of Mel Gibson, he uh, was born, of course, a Christian, then got away from it, and came back to Christianity because what really attracted him, reattracted him, and made him see, yeah, I really like this, was the violence, the violence of Christianity, the violence of The Passion of Christ, the suffering, the blood, the violence. He openly says that that's what got him back into it. And uh, his films tend to be, well, for me, over-the-top violent. But anyway, so in that particular movie uh, that he made that, about the Passion of Christ, uh, he didn't personally take part in the movie. He just appeared in one very short scene. And, of course, because he owns the movie and produces and everything, he could do whatever he wanted. But the one scene he chose to be in was he wanted to be one of the Roman soldiers who holds a nail that's hammered into the body of Christ. And uh, that's the one thing he wanted to do in the movie. Not that he wanted to kill Christ, but that he sort of identified with that. Like, anyway, so the reason I bring this up is because uh, if you take a figure like Shiva, some people are attracted to Shiva for certain reasons, other people are attracted for other reasons. The same thing in the story of Christ. Some people are attracted by the sublime, peaceful Jesus, and some people are attracted by the violence and the blood, literally, of the Jesus story. And so... There are different qualities and different people are attracted to different aspects, even of the same religious narrative. And that's one thing which is talked about in the Gita, actually, in chapter 
17 is, is, is that um, people, based on the different qualities of their own existence, sattva, rajas, and, and tamas, are attracted to different approaches to religiosity based on these different qualities. Yes. Are there any like rational flaw? I mean, what are how are they known as the uh, Shiva followers who are attracted to his benevolent side? Well, the Shiva Siddhanta tend to be like that. The Shiva Siddhanta, who were influenced by the Nayanars, you must have read about, uh, who were the great devotional poets and mystics, saints, who uh, sort of the equivalent on, on, on the Vaishnava side. There were the Alvars, and on the, on the Shaiva side, there were the Nayanars, who were, I think, really saints and, and devotees and so on. So the Shaiva Siddhanta, they tended to sort of come back into more mainstream Hinduism and even devotional Hinduism. So, uh, now, something about philosophy. There were, there were, God, there's so much I want to talk about here. There, um, okay. Round and round she goes. There were a few philosophical statements in the book, in our book that we read, that I thought really merited some comment. Uh, <laughs> like on page 261, there's, there's a certain philosophy of creation, like why does God create the world? And it comes out very clearly in this chapter. It's something which, which I find uh, very unusual. So here's a quote from the book. This is not necessarily the philosophy of Hilary Rodriguez. He's just reporting this to us. The entire creation, the entire creation emerges from Parama Shiva, the highest Shiva. Because our lower Shiva, Shiva and Shakti, Shiva as a figure, as a person, as a male person, and Shakti, the energy, the potency, his female consort, uh, in, in this type of Shaivism, much like in Shankara, uh, this is an expression of ignorance. The person Shiva, of course, everyone knows in Hinduism, the person Shiva is actually, and, and his consort Shakti, or, uh, or Kali, or uh, Durga, or Parvati, and so on, they're actually expressions of ignorance and illusion, as Shankara said, that, that Ishwar, the Lord, is, a, is an expression of illusion, but a useful, practical delusion, which you can kind of grab onto now when you're not enlightened, so that you can be religious and all that, and then when you become enlightened, you throw this stuff away and realize that there are no people there are no individuals, and so on. So this philosophy of Shankar worked its way into a major branch of Shaivism. And so the entire creation, however, when you, when you mean Shiva, who's not the illusory Ishwara, the illusory person Shiva, who's in this world, then it's Parama Shiva, the highest Shiva, the impersonal Shiva, who's sort of pure consciousness, without a real personality. So that's Parama Shiva, the highest Shiva. So the entire creation emerges from Parama Shiva as a reflection Remember the upside-down banyan tree in the Bhagavad Gita, that this world's a reflection? As a reflection, out of the absolute, unconditional freedom, sportive playfulness, and independence to act. So why does God create the world? Because he's sportive and playful and free. This emergence is fundamentally intended for the playful purpose of self-recognition. And there's another quote I wanted to throw in from the same page. Uh, since the absolute is free from all limitations, the absolute is free to limit itself, this limitation or contraction is the process of production of the multiform universe with its variety of individual beings. Uh, so what does this all mean? What this all means is that there's really only one thing. 
which is Parama Shiva, the highest Shiva, according to this view. And the fact that we appear to be individuals and there appear to be other separate things like chairs and desks and trees and mountains and so on, this is all an illusion. So if there's only one God, if there's only one God and that God is not personal, why are we now individuals if we are all that God? Because when you're liberated and enlightened, you become the Parama Shiva and you're no longer an individual person. Well, this is just, God is just playful. Now, what's interesting here is that God is not ultimately personal, but he's still playful. That's interesting. And if you take all the worst kind of suffering in the world, I mean, some people, we are extremely fortunate right now that we're just sitting here talking philosophy. There are people right now who are suffering in the most horrific, almost unspeakable ways, either because of diseases, injuries, uh, political persecution, the victims of crimes. There are people who are suffering in horrible ways emotionally because of the loss of a loved one. And to say that all this is just a game, all this is just a game, uh, somehow to me it seems to trivialize, if not to offend, uh, all these suffering people. Because that's not really what they think they're doing. Now according to this philosophy, God is just free to limit himself. But if God is free to limit or itself, if God is, if the absolute is free to limit itself, why? It should also be free to unlimit itself. It's like if you can choose to walk into this room, you can choose to walk out of the room. So if you are actually Paramashiva and you chose to come to this world and, you know, suffer in a dentist chair or, you know, go through all kinds of emotional grief, like, my God, she said she loved me. You know, if you are willing to come to, if you chose to come to this world, imagine people are suffering a thousand times worse than we are. We're the lucky ones. Why can't we just choose to stop it? Why can't you just choose to take off the limits and say, okay, the game's over. I'm tired of being sportive and playful like this. I think I'll, go just, I'll, I'll just go back out of my omniscience. Try it. Try doing that. See if it works. Snap your fingers and see if you're omniscient again. And so this philosophy, to me, seems wildly unrealistic and impractical. To say that God is playing when he, when he chooses to be the victim of, all, of torture, when, when, when God chooses to be a mother losing a child, and, and that's just a play, that's just sport. Uh, I think this philosophy is bizarre, personally. That's my personal opinion. Not on religious grounds, just on human and philosophical grounds. And uh, I think it's... I, I think it's the fact that the people that preach this, people like Avinavagupta, who's mentioned in the book, who lived in Kashmir, they were also the people who were antinomian, who also thought that it's a really cool way to free your mind is to, you know, slaughter innocent animals and eat them, or another really cool way is to, you know, perform incest and so on. These are like really neat ways to, to be enlightened. I mean, the fact that they also came up with this, frankly to me, and this is just my opinion, sick philosophy that all the terrible suffering that goes on in the world, not only among human beings, but among non-humans also, is just somehow a game. It's, it's just all fun and games, which is exactly what they're saying. And that we somehow or other, as, as we were actually God, and we chose to go through all the anguish and the grief that we're going through as a game. It's just a game. I, I think that this philosophy, to me, is just as bizarre as the five M's, or as a path to liberation. And, uh, anyway, that was my opinion. You're not reading. Yes? Um, you see sometimes, I mean, we talked about the 
and Krishna or you know, the divine performs different leelas. So uh, we see in those leelas also that sometimes they're killing people, they're hurting people, um, they're maybe even doing some of these so seemingly tantric things like dancing with other people's, you know, wives and uh, so couldn't this just be Yeah, okay, I'll, yeah, well, well, I'll use, well, I'll go into that side. From this, that there's, the, the idea that the male-female principle, the fact that in this world, gender is so important, like, you know, the attraction between male and female, that this comes from the divine, that this somehow is a reflection of a higher reality, which is also gender, that at the highest level, either cosmic or transcendental, reality is also gendered, uh, actually is also found on the Vaishnava side. It's also found in, in the Puranas, but in a different way. The idea is that we are pure souls. And again, going back to remember the, the uh, Buddha's skandhas, the coverings, which we falsely take to be the self. That's the second sermon of the Buddha, the, Buddha, the sermon on the non-existence of the self, which he doesn't say that. So you find the same idea, you find the same idea in the Vaishnava side where there's a pure soul and the Bhagavad Gita you find this actually. The first, the first layer which covers the pure soul is material intelligence, bhuti. Then there's the material mind, manas. And then the senses. Now, well actually, so, in terms of male-female attraction, even in this world it's very easy to understand. Some, let's say a, a male and female can be attracted on a purely physical level. Like, hey, I'm mindless and so are you. I think we're meant for each other. And so, you know, it can be a pure physical attraction, like no thinking allowed. And, but, if you think about it, there can also be a relationship between a man and a woman, or male and female, in which there's an emotional attraction. People not only physically attract each other, but actually emotionally they kind of have very similar feelings. They react emotionally in the same way to things or in complementary ways, and so they emotionally kind of bond together. And then you can imagine a relationship further developing where, let's say, people are thinkers, they really think deeply about life, and on an intellectual level, on a thinking level, they attract. Like, you know, like I'm really attracted to your mind, and people find they have the same ideas and deep thoughts and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's not just physical, it's not just emotional, but there's also an...